And again, I'd like to welcome you and hope your week was great and uh, hope this one coming up is even better. I'm especially impressed for you guys who are football fans who are missing the first playoff game this morning. But uh, TiVo, me too. <laughs> um, this time we'll invite the ushers to come forward to receive the offering and as they do go over a few announcements. Today, after third service, so at about 1.15, we're going to have a meet and greet luncheon for Cheryl Delano, our missionary from Cambodia. Cheryl's here, and she'll just—it'll give us a chance to spend some time with her and to, um, you know, hear what God is doing there in Poi Pet in Cambodia. And so, everyone's invited. Lunch is provided, so just show up, and it'll be a great time of fellowship, I'm sure. And Steve Bailey assures me we'll be finished by halftime of the San Diego game. So. <laughs> But come on out for that. Also, if you have high school girls, there's the high school girls Bible study during third service uh, out in the bus where the junior high is meeting this service. And so all high school girls are invited to that. For the junior high ministry, there's an Ignite dinner at the BB's house this Friday, January 19th from 6 to 9. And there are flyers in the foyer and in the fellowship hall. Um, College and Career Fellowship meets tonight at 7 o'clock, and uh, so anyone 18 to 30 or thereabouts back in the fellowship hall, our college and career group meets, and I'm sure they'll be finished before the 24 premiere. Um, a lot of you are like, what? It's okay. You don't want to get hooked on that one. Um, let's see. Women's ministry meets this week, so that means Tuesday night as well as Friday morning, a chance to get together with the ladies and study the word, pray with each other. And they want you to know that although, for instance, on Tuesday night it starts, the worship starts at 7.15, if you get here at 6.45, they have some uh, food and stuff for you. So a lot, for a lot, of, a lot of people on Tuesday night, it's just hard to, maybe you're coming straight from work or whatever, just... If you have kids and a husband, let your husband worry about that and just come down here and enjoy fellowship, get a little bite to eat, and then the study will start. And same thing on Friday morning, come early and they have refreshments there for you. Men's camp out is coming up February 23rd and 24th down at San Clemente State Beach, so sign up for that if you haven't already. Also, next Sunday, if you're a children's ministry volunteer and you haven't been fingerprinted, the fingerprint scanner will be here um, on Sunday, January 21st, and so make sure you do that. Saturday, January 27th, from 10 a.m. to noon, is a children's ministry seminar. If you're a volunteer, teacher, helper, supervisor, or if you're just interested in children's ministry, uh, put that on your calendar and make sure you get out for that. And Friday, this Friday, January 19th, we're going to have a an evening from 7 to 9.30, just a time to get together and pray for the body. The various needs that we have in the body, people who are going through difficulties or maybe battling with illnesses and things like that, and just to lift up the basic needs of our body here. And so you're invited to come out. You don't have to stay the whole time. Uh, you can come late, leave early, whatever, but just this Friday night, again, from 7 until 9.30, we'll be back in the fellowship hall having a time of prayer, and love to see you come out for it. I think that's all the announcements, so let's turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, third chapter of Philippians. 
studying through the book of Philippians as we have been on Sunday mornings. We, Paul's developing the, the theme of how you can find joy in this world. Truth about this world is you look carefully and you don't see a lot of joy. Most people in this world are pretty miserable. Even people who know God have committed their lives to him so often find themselves just in a funk, find themselves feeling like, man, how can I ever find joy? Paul wrote this letter from prison to explain the fact that joy isn't just a, you know, pie-in-the-sky, by-and-by concept. It can be the reality of your life. But the key is to understand how you connect to God how you connect to heaven. And when we make that connection, and as we saw a couple of weeks ago, you hear the upward call of God, which is in Christ Jesus. It's then that you can let go of all the stuff down here that makes life difficult. And you can become connected instead to heaven and to eternity, to things that really matter. Until we learn to, as Paul said, forget what lies behind, count everything that we think is gain as nothing, then if we don't do that, we will never come to discover what we really have that's so much better and that's so much more connected to that which is eternal. And so, again, taking us through this discussion, Paul sharing his own personal testimony of the things that he let go of and the way that he got over the past and moved into the future. Now, as the chapter winds up here in the last two verses, he puts it into a perspective by saying, we're not really living here, we're visiting. And in reality, we are citizens of heaven. Let's read beginning in verse 20. Paul says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Citizenship in heaven. For many of us, citizenship is a concept that we take for granted. Most of us are citizens by virtue of our birth. We were born in America, and therefore we are American citizens. There are some people who are nat you know, naturalized citizens where they're born somewhere else. They come here, and they have to jump through hoops and pass tests, and eventually they achieve citizenship too. And I suppose it means more to them sometimes than it may mean to those of us who were just born into it. But the idea of citizenship and what it is to belong to a unit, a group of people, a city, is something that we don't think about much. But in Philippi, it was a very graphic concept to them. Philippi was a little city that was off in Asia Minor, up where present-day Turkey is there, north of the Mediterranean, north and, and um, for the most part to the east of the Mediterranean. And they had recently, as Paul was writing this, had achieved... Uh, the status from Rome so that their little colony could all be citizens of Rome. Gave them certain rights and responsibilities, but at the same time, they had a connection to the greatest power on the face of the earth at that time. But being Roman citizens for them wasn't always easy to get a grip on because Rome was 800 miles away. Most of them had never been to Rome, would never go to Rome, and yet they understood that they have a connection 
to this great power. In a lot of ways, that's the way we are today as citizens of heaven. It's been granted to us that we have heavenly citizenship, and yet heaven's a long ways away. It's hard for us to get our head around the concept that we're really connected to heaven. But Paul was saying, in the same way that you are citizens of Rome, you're citizens of heaven. The word that he uses there for our citizenship is a word, a Greek word that comes from the Greek word polis, which is what they would call their cities or city-states, ultimately countries. It's the same word, the root word from which we get words like politics and political. The, the, uh, the Roman word for city was civitas, and that's the word that brings us things like civilization and civic responsibility, and ultimately through the French, the word city. Now, how cities or polis, city-states, developed There was one point when everyone in the world just lived together with their families. There were nomadic tribes moving throughout the area, living in tents, and as the family grew and extended, the kids, the grandkids, all would live in that one area. But gradually, as criminals began to organize, and as certain areas just decided to invade other areas, it just wasn't enough to have your family and everyone in your family there to protect you. And so the people began to discover that it actually was a good thing to mutually agree to bind together for the common good of everyone. And so when you'd gather together with more people, sometimes building a little fortress you could hide into, but cooperating and contributing to the community, you had the birth of what we call a city, or what they would call in the Greek language a polis. Now, today, it's hard for us to even grasp that concept because most of what we think about city is yuck. Many of us, though we've lived in cities all of our lives, we have this dream of someday getting away from the city. When we hear polis or police, when we hear hear about politics and politicians, so often the last thing we think of a politician is someone who works for the common good to facilitate ways that we can gather together and be stronger together than we could be individually. Our concept of a politician is someone knows how to work the system, take advantage of everyone in order for them to have their own benefit. But it wasn't that way originally. It was the idea that you can become a a part of something that will make you safer and more secure and more fulfilled than anything you could be on your own. And that's an important concept for us to understand when it comes to being citizens of heaven. Because what God calls us to be as a people, as his church, is to say, you know what, you guys could do it on your own but you're going to be so much better if you'll get together, if everyone will contribute. It's what Paul talked about, especially over in chapter 2 of Philippians, esteeming others higher than yourself, realizing that you can join together with others in a connection that takes its calling from heaven, and you'll be much better together than you could ever be apart. And so he says, our citizenship, Though we may be grateful for our earthly citizenship, whether we're a U.S. citizen or, you know, if you're a, maybe some of you are Canadian citizens, that's something to be proud of. Or, seriously, I mean, it's a beautiful country. I won't go any further. But uh, 
whatever your earthly citizenship is, Paul had just said, you know what? Everything that was gained to me, I counted it as loss compared to hearing that upward call of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So he says, okay, you have your earthly citizenship, great. Paul appealed to his Roman citizenship when he got himself in legal trouble. Nothing wrong with that, but Paul would say, that's nothing compared to a citizenship that's in heaven. And so he calls us to understand what we are a part of and where we are connected to. Because the truth is, in heaven, everything is perfect. Down here, everything is messed up and turned upside down. And so he says, the problem is, you're not experiencing joy, and you're not getting life. It's not what you want it to be, partly because you think that you're a local here. In reality, where you're a local is in heaven. You're visiting here. You don't fit here. You don't belong here. You'll do the best you can. It's a nice place to visit, but you don't want to live there. Your life is in heaven. And so as he says, our citizenship is in heaven, he kind of goes on to talk about a few different, three different concepts that we'll see this morning that let us know what heavenly citizenship is all about and how it lives itself out. And the first thing he says there in verse 20, he says, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing about living on earth but having citizenship is in heaven is the awareness of the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back. We are waiting for him. And as he uses the word there, eagerly waiting, uh, that is a word that refers to just being anxious, Like, I can't wait. The way a a kid is on Christmas Eve, knowing tomorrow's Christmas. This word, every time it's used in the New Testament, is connected to the second coming of Jesus Christ, the fact that he is going to return. And he says, I know that he's coming back, and I'm eagerly waiting. The same word is used in Romans 8, talking about, man, I can't wait to get out of this body. And we'll see that as we go into our second point. But it's the awareness that Jesus is coming back. Now, you may go, that's hard to really grasp, the imagination of Jesus returning. But it's something that Jesus talked to his disciples about uh, on several occasions. One of the main ones was John 14. He had been talking about leaving the earth. And he said, look, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Thomas is like, well, we don't know. How are we going to get there? We know GPS. And, And Jesus said, look, you know me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except by me. Jesus telling the disciples, As certain as that I'm going to go, that's how sure you can be that I'm coming back. And then, of course, over in the first chapter of Acts, as Jesus ascended into heaven on the clouds, two angels were standing there, and they saw the disciples kind of staring up into the sky after Jesus had disappeared. And they said, hey, guys, why are you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus that you see ascending into heaven is going to come back in like manner in the clouds. Jesus is coming back. And the Bible talks about this consistently throughout the New Testament as a motivating factor for us hanging in there. See, 
Whatever it is that you're worried about right now, whatever you're struggling with right now, what would it mean if Jesus were to come back? He could rescue you from everything you're afraid of. I believe with all my heart that Jesus is coming back. He talks about it. He assures us. It's appealed to by Peter talks about it and Paul, James, all of them. Over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul talking about, you know, the, the, the fact that they were missing their friends. He goes, don't worry. They're going to precede us. And he said, the day is going to come when the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. I believe with all my heart that at any moment, Jesus could come back. And he could come back for me by me just keeling over and dying. If that happens right now, don't worry. You got out of church early. Come, come back for Cheryl's luncheon. If he comes back for me, believe me, don't, don't feel bad for me. I, I'd be blessed. That would be great. But I also believe that he may just come back and wind things up and draw us all up into heaven to be with him together in the rapture. I'm convinced of that. And it could happen at any time. And always, and you can tell here, Paul is, is going, hey, I'm eagerly awaiting. I'm wanting this to happen. Paul talking to Titus, talked about the future, saying, you know what, Titus 2.13, I'm looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a powerful thing to understand Jesus really is coming back. Not just to believe in a historical Jesus who did a lot of cool stuff, but a Jesus who is going to return for us. Now, when we talk about Jesus' return, becomes kind of confusing. It's not something that there's one place in the scripture that lays it out clearly, although scripture repeatedly emphasizes Jesus is coming back, and that's the most important thing that you have to understand. But there are people, good Christian people, who have, in trying to understand the return of the Lord, have come up with a lot of different ways of looking at it. And, and these are people who we love, and there are brothers and sisters, but they've come up with different ways of trying to interpret it. Now, at the risk of boring you to tears, I want to give you a real brief summary education of what's called eschatology, the, the uh, study of future things, just because I want to make one point. Now, if this starts to bore you, it won't take long. Just take a little nap, and I'll wake you up when I'm back. But there's something in the Bible called the millennium. It's God's reign on the earth that he talks about towards the end of Revelation, Revelation chapter 20. A thousand year time, or some people think it's a symbolic length, but the time when Jesus will finally come and fix everything that's on the earth. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven as he prayed. Now, when is that time? Personally, I I'm a premillennialist. A premillennialist believes that Jesus is going to come and set up his kingdom. So he's going to come pre, before the millennium. Now, there are also people who are post-millennialists, and these are people who believe that there's a millennium, but they don't usually think it's a literal thousand years, but at the end of that thousand-year reign, then Jesus is going to come back. There are a couple different varieties of post-millennialists. Some of them believe that it's the job of the church to take over the world and once we get enough political power and once we fix things enough, 
These are called reconstructionists, by the way. Once we make the world a decent place, then the second coming will happen. So there are some premillennialists who just believe that naturally it'll sort of deteriorate somewhat, but there'll be a revival in the end. So you have premillennialists, Jesus is coming before the millennium, postmillennialists, Jesus is coming after the millennium. You also have what's called amillennialists, ah meaning no. And these are people who really don't believe in a millennium per se, or they would say, what you're experiencing now is the millennium. We are in it now. And there are different varieties of whether or not, you know, how Jesus is coming works into the whole thing. But basically, they say it doesn't have anything to do with a millennium. That's not the issue. Now, there's also a group of people nowadays, it's becoming more popular, called preterists. Preterists are people who believe that everything that's prophesied in the scriptures in the book of Revelation about end times, it all happened in the past. It was fulfilled when, when uh, Jerusalem was overrun, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and all of these prophecies are just to, just were basically fulfilled back then in the first century, and so it's irrelevant, all these prophecies as to the coming of our Lord. Now, in the premillennial camp, there are still at least three distinct groups of people, because Premillennialists believe that there's a time called the tribulation period that happens before the before the coming of the Lord, a time of judgment on on the land, on on evil, on Israel for their rejection, the protection of Israel, and preservation ultimately. Now, some people believe that the rapture comes at the beginning or pre-tribulation, seven years of suffering on the earth, then. Jesus actually returning onto the earth, feet touching down on the Mount of Olives, and then instituting the millennial kingdom, and we would rule and reign with him. So we're in heaven for seven years, and we come back with him and rule and reign with him. That's a pre-tribulation, pre-millennial. Have I lost you? Okay, I see a few of you are nodding, so I'll finish this thought. <laughs> there are other people who believe what's either called a post-tribulation rapture or historical premillennialism, it's usually called. They believe that the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation. We as the church will go through the tribulation. At the end of the tribulation, we'll get raptured up into heaven and we'll come immediately back down to earth to rule and reign with him for a thousand years. And then it's the same as, as other premillennialists. Now, I call that a ricochet rapture because I don't understand what the point of being raptured and coming immediately back is. But that's, I have dear friends and and good solid people who love the Lord have believed in that. There's a newer idea called mid-tribulation, or they, call, they don't like to say mid-trib, so they call themselves pre-wrath. And what they mean is that we'll be here during probably the first half of the tribulation, and then when the Antichrist really takes over, and the beast, and there's the abomination of desolation where he comes and desecrates the Holy of Holies, at that point, the Christians will be raptured in the middle of the tribulation, come back with him, and up after that, it becomes like pre-tribulation rapture. Now, you, if you want, can say, I'm just pan-tribulation. It's just, I think it'll all pan out. It'll be fine. I don't care about any of that. Hey, no matter what you believe, if I'm right and Jesus is coming before the tribulation for his church, don't worry, you'll get raptured. If, if, if pre-tribulation rapture is true, then everyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ will be raptured. 
If mid, then okay, we're going to have a few rough years. If post, God will see us through it. If we get martyred, we go immediately. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I'm not worried. But here's the point. And again, I wouldn't divide over these teachings or anything, but the reason I bring it up is because Paul's appeal here, the first thing he mentions when he says, you need to realize how connected you are to heaven, is that he seems to say, that Jesus Christ has an imminent, we call it an imminent return. That is, he could come back at any time. So we're not, as he said to Titus, it's not like we're looking for Antichrist. We're looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The next thing that needs to happen is for Jesus to come back. And believing in the imminent return of Jesus Christ, I believe, has a powerfully transforming effect on our lives. We feel connected to heaven when we know we could go there at any time. Now, the truth is you could die today and you'll go to heaven and that's your rapture. But the knowledge that at any time he could come back, to me, is an important thing to hang on to. Now, you go, well, why don't the other views believe that? Well, if you're a a historical premillennialist or a post-tribulationist, when the tribulation starts, seven years later, Jesus is coming back. Rapture is happening. And so... It's like you can figure it out, but the Bible says that nobody can know the day or the hour. If you're mid-trib, count three and a half years from the abomination of desolation, poof, there you are. For an amillennialist or a post-millennialist, hey, it's like we're in this long process and nobody's really expecting Jesus to come back. Preterists are the one group, and it's it's really more or less of a newer teaching, the idea that it all happened in the first century. And the reason why preterism has become more popular is because at least a preterist acknowledges, obviously, Paul thought Jesus could come at any time. Obviously, Peter thought Jesus could come at any time. Obviously, Jesus seemed to say that he could come at any time. And so a preterist would go, okay, so he did come. You just didn't notice. He came and he wiped out Israel, and now that's done. So at least I give a preterist that. They believe that there was an imminent return of Christ. Problem is they think that's all over now. Now, what difference does it make, really? Probably not a huge difference, except that the Bible constantly stresses that this is something that makes a difference in our lives, that this is something that has a direct application to us. Now, I wouldn't take a theological position because of its practical benefit, but at the same time, in reading the scriptures, I would want to say, oh, this makes sense, this touches me, and so if I believe that the Bible teaches this, then it definitely has an application to me. And so for me, and you can hold to your own view, I'm not going to argue with you about it, but, but for me, my belief that Jesus could come back at any time helps me to be really intimately connected to my citizenship that's in heaven. It's imminent. He could come back now. He could come back today. I believe that with all my heart. And I believe that to be truly connected to our citizenship, it's important for us to be conscious of that. 
Some of us, when we were younger, you know, they talked a lot about this and the rapture's coming, and some of us were convinced that, man, Israel became a nation, count 40 years, a generation that's going to pass, as Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse there, Matthew 24, and I'm sure he's coming in the 60s. Maybe I miscalculated in the 80s or whatever. And there was a, by the way, with all of the teaching on the imminent return of Christ, powerful revival happened within the church. It's why Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, was such a great seller. Pastor Chuck and others who taught on the rapture, taught on the imminent return of Christ, how, how it touched our hearts. And yet, for some of us, just a few years have gone by, and now we're over it. Now we're like, okay, I used to think that. There was a guy who was a wacky guy, but you remember him if you're old enough. He was the guy that wore the rainbow wig and held the John 3.16 signs up at all the, all the sporting events. Every time a touchdown, there's this guy, his name was Roland Stewart, holding up his John 3.16 sign. Well, the guy ended up going kind of wacky and, and getting upset, and he was mad because Jesus hadn't come back. And he thought Jesus was coming back. He believed it. He ended up blaming Pastor Chuck and Hal Lindsey and other people because it's, Jesus hadn't come back yet. Like their teaching had some sort of a guarantee, you know, that, that by this date or by this time. You know, and that's a lot of people. Maybe we don't go crazy and wear rainbow wigs and set off bombs and stuff. He ended up going to jail for trying to shoot an airplane out of the sky at LAX. So, you know, for him, that disappointment ran pretty deep. And you got to believe, you got to believe there was something else going on. But for a lot of us, we remember the time when someone talked to us about Jesus coming back and we felt like, oh man, I love that thought. I so desperately want that. Jesus, you could come back at any time. Now, some of us, when we were younger, tended to think, I'd love for Jesus to come back, but be nice if first I could, you know, get married, or if first I could get that car I really want, or I'm holding out. I hope Jesus doesn't come back until the Dodgers can win the World Series again, or, you know, something like that. But, you know, that's, and that's a good picture of the problem. The thing is, do we really want him to come back or do we still want to do this on our own? When we get to a point of desperation, when we get to the point where, like Paul, we're going, I counted everything as lost, nothing matters to me anymore, then the imminent return of Christ takes on a whole new meaning for us because we're going, I just want him to come because that's what this world needs. It needs for him to return. That's what we need when we really see our lives the way they are. We'll, we'll realize, you know what, the best thing that could happen right now if Jesus would come back. There's nothing that I'm looking forward to that's going to satisfy me like being in his presence. I'm a citizen of heaven. Now, today, if you're hearing this kind of thing for the first time other than from wackos carrying signs and stuff, you're like, you really believe it? Yeah, I do. And I know it may sound weird to you, but it's absolutely true. Jesus is coming back. If he wasn't coming back, life would just be a huge disappointment to me. But he is coming back. And Paul knew that. And he said, that is a part of your citizenship being in heaven. If you don't like that idea, stay here. Deal with life. But he said, there's a better life. There's another place. He goes on to say, not only are we eagerly waiting for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, but he said, when he comes, he's going to transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. 
So he's waiting not only for that imminent return of Christ, but he's saying, one of the cool things about when Jesus returns is my body's going to get fixed. My body is going to be transformed. It's going to be what we call resurrected. Now, this is confusing to a lot of people, too, because we look at, okay, we're in a body now. What are we going to be like when we're in heaven? Paul talks about this over in 1 Corinthians 15 and says, so what kind of a body is it? Paul goes on to say, this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. As he pointed out, flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. So something has to happen or this body won't work in eternity. There are some people who come up with a simple answer that, okay, I discard this body and then I'll just get another body. I'll get another body. And that's easy to comprehend, but it isn't theologically accurate because that wouldn't be resurrection. That would be reincarnation. Others say, I'm going to leave this body and I'll be a spirit floating around. But that doesn't work either because Jesus let them touch him in his glorified body. And Paul says here, we're going to get a body that's, that's sumorphe, that's the same form as his so our body's going to be like his, so therefore you'll be able to touch us. And therefore, like Jesus, when he came back in his body, yes, it had some incredible capabilities. Apparently, he could just drift into a room without opening the door. He could zip back and forth to heaven and down to earth, even to the grave, to Abraham's bosom. He had amazing capabilities, and yet he ate. He had a body that they could recognize And he he ate with them. First thing he did when he showed up in the upper room after introducing himself to them, then he goes, hey, by the way, you got anything to eat? And he goes, go ahead, I I have flesh and bones. Now, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. So maybe he has bones and not blood. I don't know if that'll be necessary or not. Jesus cooked a barbecue for the disciples on the shore of Galilee when he was in his new body and ate fish with them. I'm really hoping we don't have to eat fish in heaven. But but here's the thing, and Paul's Paul's bringing it about here. By the way, the, the word there for transform our bodies is a word that has the Greek word schematizo, from which we get our word schematic. And then the and then the preview is the word that means after. And so what he's saying is there's a body that God has for you that's designed and morphed, which is the word for um, conformed there, after the body of Jesus. He has designed a special body for you. It's interesting as you think about a schematic or a design for someone, because in thinking about our bodies, how can this body be raised? And we even think, oh, it can't be this body that's raised, it's another body. We talk about our spiritual body as if it's a different body. It's different in a way, but it's connected to this body. Now, how can that work? There are people who believe that it's wrong for a Christian to be cremated or it's wrong for you to donate a, you know, an organ to someone because then how's God going to put you back together in the resurrection and the transformation? But your body, I don't know if you realize it, most of you probably do, this isn't the body that you had 10 years ago. Most of you know this. You know, it's swelling, it's wrinkling, it's, but biologically, your cells are constantly being reproduced, and scientists vary. Some of them claim that there are certain 
parts of your body that were always there, but for the most part, your body's constantly replicating itself. And the constant in your body is your DNA, the programming, who you are, is basically defined by software, not hardware. So my body is completely different than it was when I was seven years old, but I'm the same person. It's the same body in a way, but DNA continues to reproduce who I am in a way that keeps me up to date. That's my schematic. That's my plan, schematizo, as the, as the Greeks would say. And so God is the one who holds that in his mind. He knows who you are because he invented your DNA. Now, because of sin, your DNA has been damaged. There are things about you genetically that aren't perfect. And, of course, the influence of aging and all sorts of other problems that you have are connected to genetics that have been messed up because of sin. Now, follow me here, okay? Now, and, and again, you know, you look at, okay, how is this going to work out? As long as God has the schematics of who you are, then he has the capability of fixing all of the genetic problems that you have and all of the environmental corruption that you've undergone, and he can put together your body, and you're going to go, that's me, that's exactly who I am. It's patterned after his, it's perfect as his was, and yet it is totally still you. Back in the book of Job, when Job was just getting totally frustrated towards the middle of the book around chapter 19, Job, in the midst of his torment, he goes, I know that my Redeemer lives. And he'll stand on that last day, and though this body is destroyed with my own eyes, mine and not somebody else's, I know I will see God. Job understood, the oldest book in the Bible, he goes, though this body is going to rot, yet I know that somehow this body will someday be with the Lord. And that's the great hope that we have. It's what that word for eagerly waiting there is used in Romans 8, where, where Paul's talking about, man, do I groan in this body. This body is the source of my problems. I hate it. And I'm eagerly waiting for Jesus to come back because he'll give me that new body. 1 John chapter 3, John's talking about this and he says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, the children of God. And it hasn't yet appeared what we're going to be, but we know that when he shall appear, we will be like him. For we will see him as he is. And he goes on to say, And everyone that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Not only knowing that Jesus can return, but that Jesus is going to put our body back together the way it was supposed to be, the way it was designed to function. Now, if I understand that that project is taking place, that when Jesus comes, that's going to happen. Whether it's when I die to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord or whether I meet him in the air with all of you. I realize at that point, I'm going to get a body that was actually and perfectly designed. My software goes into a new piece of hardware. Now, if you use computers, you know how this works. You, your computer starts wearing out. Parts go bad. And if you're fortunate, now if you own a Macintosh, it's so easy. You take one Mac, hook it together with your new Mac, and you tell it to migrate everything over, you wait an hour, hour and a half, you turn on your Macintosh, we'll be selling them in the office, you turn on your Macintosh, 
and I have a brand new computer that thinks it's the old computer. All my stuff is on there, everything carried over, and it works perfectly. Now, if you're a, a PC user, you can do the same thing in about three days, four days. But eventually, you take all the software, and you move it over, and you go, well, it still knows me. It's still doing, it has my history and everything else. That's our new bodies. That's our glorified bodies. The software put into a, a body that's fixed and designed perfectly to function with who I am and with what I do and with what I need. Now, for all of us, our citizenship in heaven means that all of the problems down here that are hardware-related, that have to do with people's flaws and failures, that have to do with my limitations and, and, and lack of the ability to be what I know I want to be, the hurts and the pains and the squeaks and, you know, your hard drive starts squawking and doesn't, you don't always want to boot up in the morning and all, you know, it's like no big deal. I've got a new machine on order, and it's going to run all this stuff, but it's going to do it the way it's supposed to. I have a new body that he is preparing for me, and he promises he's going to come back, and he's going to give me that body. And when I get it in a way, it'll be like a different body, but really it's just this major upgrade to where it feels comfortable, it feels like me, but it does everything that I want to do, everything that I need it to do. Being in heaven with Jesus in a body that's designed for heaven, in a new body. And so Paul's saying, you've got this citizenship. Jesus is coming back for you, and he has a body that's going to be your old body, but totally fixed, totally straightened out. Now, finally, he says, conform to his glorious body according to the working. The Greek word there is energia, from which we get the word energy or energized. According to the energizing by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. The key there, the key to this whole thing, the key to the whole Bible is in those three words, he is able. He's saying, I've got this dream of heaven, this, this longing for a return of Christ, this knowledge that he promises he'll give me a body that's fixed. And then he says, not only that, he has the power, the authority, the energy to make this happen because the day will come when he fixes everything and subdues everything under himself. This world is upside down, but I know that Jesus, when he comes back, is going to turn it back right side up. What does this have to do with me? Well, everything that frustrates me that's wrong about this earth and about me, he's going to fix it. He has the power to do it. Over there in Matthew, before Jesus gave them the Great Commission, he said, all power... All authority has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. He can do this. We know we are going to win. It's like hearing the score of a game before you start to TiVo it. It's, it's done. It's a done deal. And it's not like, well, you know, there are two ways you can go. And you can either believe in Jesus, that he's the truth, or you can believe whatever you want. That's not an option. Someday, everyone will believe in Jesus. Some people may come to that awareness too late. 
But the fact is, as we saw back in chapter 2, talking about Jesus after he humbled himself, and then it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow, things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You can reject Jesus Christ right now, but I promise you the day will come when you bow your knee and you confess with your tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right now, you feel like you're in a minority because most people hear about the coming of Christ and your new body in heaven, and they just think, you're a nut. The majority of people in this world don't really believe this, don't live like they believe it. Maybe even the majority of Christians have a hard time with these concepts. But ultimately, if you believe what he says, you know the truth. And sooner or later, he will vindicate himself He will subdue everything, pull everything into line, fix everything. And when he does, you'll be so glad that you go, I knew it. I believed it back when nobody was believing it. I was pre-trib when it wasn't cool. I I was trusting in a new body when everybody looked at my body and said, there's no hope for you. And I knew there was. See, to be a citizen in heaven means to be on the right side. It means to live your life in such a way that it won't be a shock to your system when everybody sees the truth. It's seeing the truth now and understanding he's going to fix it all. And again, I don't care if you're pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, amillennial, post-millennial, pan-millennial, or, you know, uh, preterist or anything else. Truth is going to come out about Jesus Christ. And then nobody's going to care whether you have the right eschatological position it's were you a citizen of heaven were you his did you give your life to him have you trusted him for your salvation did you make that connection with heaven did you hear that upward calling of God and if you have glorious futures ahead for you when you get to heaven and if you get raptured and you're surprised that you're raptured that's cool you have a new body and you thought, oh, I thought it was just going to be a ghost floating around. I didn't know I could. That's okay. It's fine. Because the truth doesn't depend on you believing it. God doesn't say, we need to get enough people to believe in me so that I can pull this thing off. Because that city in heaven, that collection of those who bind together for mutual blessing, it's already decided. It's already done. The truth is truth, whether you believe it or not. And as citizens of heaven, though how blessed we are if we can see the truth and understand it and know that someday everyone's going to know what God has been telling us. It was true all along. Don't worry what people think of you right now. Worry about if you can trust God or not. And if you do, someday he'll bring everything under his roof Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That prayer of Jesus and the Lord's prayer will be answered. And we'll be so glad that we were on the right side, that we placed our trust in him, that instead of having to, out of of agony, to bow our knee and confess with our tongue when it's too late, to know that I am so glad I wised up when there was still time. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the truth of your word. 
And we're blown away that we were citizens of heaven because we put our faith in you and we didn't even realize it. And most of the time, we act like we're not. And yet, it's not about us, it's about you and you've declared us to be citizens of heaven. Lord, help us to anxiously await your return. Give us a a touch of heaven in such a way that we just know this is true, this is really going to happen. Help us to live like we believe that. And Lord, when our bodies ache and groan, when other people's bodies let us down, when this corrupt world fails us, when we see the things that aren't fair, Lord, help us to see the schematic of the new bodies that you've prepared for us, the plans that you have for our future in heaven. Lord, help us to taste it right now, to know that it's real. And God, we thank you for the day when Jesus Christ will rule and reign over all, and nobody will doubt, nobody will question, nobody will be making fun of him, every knee bowing, every tongue confessing, Lord, thanks for including us here in the early days to be citizens of heaven. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.